The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. The federal government ran record-setting deficits in 2020 and 2021, boosting the federal debt into record-setting territory. Washington's red ink is difficult for people to make sense of, in part because the numbers are so staggering large, uh, now in excess of $30 trillion, and also because it's hard to see where this money's coming from. Perhaps the most fundamental task of economics is to help us see the unobserved, or what economists call opportunity costs. What are the consequences of large deficits and such an enormous national debt? Is Washington about to go bankrupt? To help us make sense of the national debt and understand its consequences, we'll be talking today to one of my favorite macroeconomists, Dr. Alex Salter. Dr. Salter is the Georgie G. Snyder Professor of Economics with the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech University. Dr. Salter went to Occidental College as an undergraduate and then earned a PhD from George Mason University. He's the author of more than 70 academic papers and co-author of the book Money and the Rule of Law. In addition to this, he writes extensively for the public on issues of macroeconomics and monetary economics, which we're going to be talking about here today. So welcome back to the show, Alex. It's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Well, let's get started here. Um, we often hear two numbers uh, were spoken about the size of the deficit or the national debt. And one is around $30 trillion. And we hear that it's just topped $30 trillion for the first time. And then there's a second number that sometimes gets reported that's a little bit smaller than that. And they're both really big numbers, but there is a distinction. And there is a distinction here between the debt that, you know, the total debt and the debt held by the public. So if you could, let's start by talking about that, what that difference is. And, and does it mean anything for, for you or I or, or average people uh, in, in our economy? Sure. So like you said, the two figures that you're most likely to see quoted when we're talking about the federal debt, first there's the gross debt, basically how much debt is there out there, period. And right now that's just shy of $30.5 The second figure that you're going to hear is what fraction of that debt or how much of that debt is held by the public. Now in this context, public means non-federal agencies. A lot of government agencies own government debt. A prominent example is the United States Federal Reserve. So if you factor out the debt that the federal government owns, in other words, if you don't count the debt that various federal agencies have on their books, that figure is lower. It's about 24 trillion. And the reason that matters is if push comes to shove and the United States found it hard to meet its debt obligations, one way of lessening that pain is that various federal agencies could just forgive the debt. After all, it owes it to itself. It's just one branch of the federal government or one part of the federal government has on its books a government bond. So instead of demanding repayment, it could simply tell the treasury, you don't need to pay me back. And so that would free up resources that could be then used to pay the federal debt and interest held by the public, people whose debts that Uncle Sam cannot unilaterally cancel. Okay, so in, in which would you think is, is more important, just the, the debt held by the public or, or the, the, the overall debt? I would pay attention to both of them, but if we're talking about fiscal sustainability, it's probably debt held by the public. 
it's probably a good idea to factor out that debt that's held by various government agencies. Because again, if push came to shove, there almost certainly would be an arrangement worked out by decision makers in Washington whereby that debt was either marked down or just outright forgiven. Mm -hmm. Now, you can't do that to creditors of the government who are not part of the federal government. You certainly can't do it to foreign nationals. So in terms of fiscal solvency, that's really the portion of the debt that you need to focus on the most. And as a fraction of the economy, the figure that you're most likely to see is the debt to GDP ratio. Right which is just how much federal debt there is as a ratio of the size of the US economy, how much that it produces every year. If you're looking at the gross debt figure, it looks like we're pretty indebted. It's more than 120% of GDP. But looking just at the debt held by the public, that's more manageable. It's about 95% of GDP. So it's actually a pretty sizable difference. No, um, so yeah, they're, they're all big numbers. So when, once you get into millions, billions, trillions, the, the illions there are, it can be, be hard to get a, a sense of. Now, one thing we want to talk about is like, well, when the federal government's borrowing money, because you know, we spend a lot of, the, the federal government spends a lot of money, and we see what happens when the federal government spends the money. If they were going to tax us, we'd sort of know where that comes from, because we'd get, you know, we, we'd have to pay more to the IRS uh, uh, every year. And, but when we think about debt, one of the first things we need to try to think about is like, where, where is this money that the federal government's coming from? Is it, obviously, besides the, the money that they're borrowing from the federal government itself, where, where is this money coming from? Tell us a little bit about that. Federal government money comes from primarily taxation and then also borrowing. Those are the two main sources of federal revenues. So obviously, if we're running deficits year after year, and we are, we're not raising enough in taxes to meet all of the federal outlays. So the difference is going to be gotten from capital markets. The United States government, just like other organizations, auctions off debt, basically looks for people who will voluntarily lend it money. Mm -hmm. And those transactions that's important to remember are voluntary. Nobody forces Uncle Sam and creditors to come to an arrangement. People loan the government money because it has the reputation as a very good and safe creditor. If you look at a lot of economic financial models, sometimes those models will have a parameter in there called the risk-free interest rate, the return that you could get on your money with negligible rich, uh, risk attached to it. In the real world, the closest thing that we have to a risk-free interest rate is short-term government debt especially, because the odds that that's not going to be paid back are astronomically low. Honestly, if Uncle Sam defaulted on its short-term debt payments, that would probably send a massive ripple effect through global financial markets. And although I know that both of us are fans of fiscal discipline, I think that we should not hope that that happens. You know, one of the things that additionally then I think uh, causes people difficulty in trying to understand the, the burden of the debt is that if you or I or one of our viewers were to borrow some money, we'd have to pay it back someday. That, that debt would have a, a, a end date and, and we would have to you know, pay that loan back. Maybe we'd take out another loan to, to, to try and pay it back. But we face a, a need to, or, or, or mandate to that we're, we're eventually going to have to pay off the loans. And if we happen to die with the loans, is it still in place? Whoever you know, our, our heirs are are going to have those those debts. And but it seems like with the federal government, they don't have to. In a sense, it doesn't seem like we're ever going to pay off the debt. And and that makes it sort of hard to see then. If we're borrowing and you don't have to pay the loan back, that sounds like, you know, for us, it sounds like a, a pretty good deal. But, um, you know, what, what, what does that really mean in terms of, you know, how are we paying for this? Great question. 
In short, it means that Uncle Sam can get away with things that private organizations couldn't get away with. Like you said, Uncle Sam is never going to have to repay all of its public debt. It has to repay portions of it. Every year, some of it matures. Every six months, some of it matures. It's definitely important that Uncle Sam not default. But I think that we need to understand that there's probably never going to be a scenario whereby the totality of the public debt is paid off. In fact, this is an interesting point from American history. One of the first big debates after the ratification of the Constitution was whether we should have a permanent public debt or whether we should actually try and pay it all off. To make a long story short, the advocates of a permanent public debt largely won. They thought that having a large and permanent public debt would help establish capital markets. It would help establish the public credit so we could ramp up borrowing if a war came up or something like that and we needed money quickly. So yes, because we don't have to pay back all the federal debt today, that sometimes makes it seem like all the money that we've borrowed is larger than it is because really Uncle Sam's not on the hook for all of that. It needs to pay back enough to make sure that it doesn't default. It needs to keep its credit rating high. It needs to retain the capacity to borrow large sums of money quickly to meet emergency situations. But aside from that, it really doesn't have to pay down any more debt than is absolutely necessary. And there are benefits to that. We don't have to necessarily raise taxes to crippling levels, but there are also costs to that. One of which is that the public sector tends not to spend money as responsibly as the private sector. So when capital markets loan the federal government money, like you said, we have to pay attention to the opportunity cost. Every dollar that Uncle Sam spends on some project that consumes resources now could have been put into a productive investment in the private sector that would yield returns over many, many years. So we have to consider the opportunity cost, what we could have had instead of all this federal borrowing, especially because the vast majority of what we do when the federal government borrows is not make productive public investments, but fund current consumption that happens to be done by the government. And, and so that's that's critically important because, again, you know, we see the cost of taxation and, and we would feel it, but we don't, I think it's a lot harder to see what we're giving up when federal, when, when uh, you know, Uncle Sam goes out and increases the debt by like four trillion dollars, which they've done over the the last two uh, fiscal years, and so it's just a lot harder for us to see what 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 exactly we're giving up, and and that's crucially important because economics is is all about decision making. You have to weigh benefits versus costs. It's crucially important you be able to see both, both the benefits and the the costs, right? Absolutely. Almost always, no, in fact, I'll say always, if you only look at one side of the ledger, you're not getting a full picture of the decision scenario. If you want to make good choices, you have to consider on the one hand, what are the additional benefits I expect to incur if I make this choice versus what are the expected additional costs that I think that I'm going to incur if I make this decision. If you focus only on benefits or ignore costs, or focus only on costs and ignore benefits, you're basically overlooking half of the relevant information that can tell you whether that's a good decision to make. And this is something that a lot of people, even a lot of economists fall prey to when they're talking about federal spending. It's easy to see the quote unquote good stuff of federal mm -hmm. spending. You have the public sector mobilize resources that's plausibly linked to new uh, economic activity, new jobs, all that stuff. Okay, great. Those are the benefits which are easy to observe. 
The costs are harder to observe because they rely on us answering the question, what would have happened if we hadn't made this federal government spending? And we can't obviously look at something and say, oh, that's going to be the obvious cost. But what we can do is know that if that money was not spent by the federal government right now, consuming resources, right, eating the seed corn, so to speak, that capital almost certainly would have been channeled into a profitable project in the private sector that would have not only generated goods and services for consumers right now, but also for years to come. So when you look at that and consider all that we're giving up, I think that there are good reasons to be concerned with the growth and government as represented by massive public debt, even if we're not at the risk of a fiscal crisis. Mm -hmm. That's not really the relevant consideration. The re relevant consideration is when Uncle Sam steps up its borrowing footprint in capital markets, is that the best use of that of those scarce resources? I think we have good reasons to think, no, it's not. And, and you, you mentioned, and this is crucially important, uh, individual investors are, have to choose to lend the, the money to the federal government. And then a big part of the market for treasury bills is then if somebody owns some treasury bills and they want to get out of that position, they can sell them to somebody else. So in effect, we have to have lots and lots of investors who are willing to uh, lend money to the federal government or to come in and buy existing uh, federal debt because the people who buy it initially might are probably going to plan to sell it to somebody else uh, to liquid and not hold it until they get it re repaid to them. So it's very important. We've got to have a lot of investors with enough confidence to, to want to lend to Uncle Sam, right? Yes, the market for U.S. government debt is highly liquid. Lots and lots of people are more than happy to lend the federal government money because, again, historically, it's been such a reliable creditor. And one way you can tell that is how low interest rates have stayed for such a long period of time. Really, interest rates have been low by historical standards, in fact, very low since the global financial crisis of 2008. And a lot of people want to blame the Federal Reserve for that. And I think that the central bank has some control over some interest rates in the short run. But guess what? It's been more than 14 years since the global financial crisis of 2008. No central bank, not even the Fed, has the power to keep global interest rates that low for that long. At the end of the day, interest rates are a global price, the price of capital. They're determined in a global market, supply and demand for capital. And central banks, although outsized players, are only just one player in that very big, very liquid market. If we're serious about treating the informational content of market prices as a reliable indicator of opportunity cost, in other words, if we think that prices tell us something about scarcity, we have to look at the low borrowing costs Uncle Sam is currently getting and say, it seems like investors think this is a pretty good deal. Yeah, I think that's a, a crucial point. Because as you mentioned, these are interest rates are a type of price and they're a price set in a, a market. And uh, again, Uncle Sam's a big borrower, but that's a really big cap world capital market or, or a pool of world, world investment funds. And uh, you know, we have to look at what the, the price signals tell us. And one of the things would be is that if the federal government was, say, on a path or, or on the verge of imminent uh, bankruptcy, we would see some evidence of that in these market prices, wouldn't we? You know, we would start to see uh, interest rates, especially interest rate that, that investors would be willing to lend to the federal government, change pretty dramatically, wouldn't it? You would, absolutely. If people thought that Uncle Sam ultimately wasn't good for the money that it borrowed, they would demand much higher interest rates to let them have any capital at all. 
And we're seeing just the opposite. Interest rates are low and they have stayed low. You could even look at the interest expense that we're paying on government debt as a share of the economy, the so-called interest expense to GDP ratio. Guess what? That number right now is near historical lows. We're only paying about 1.5% of US GDP in interest on government debt. The 1990s, when the government was a much larger share of the economy than it is today, that figure was closer to 3.5%. So really, when you look at this servicing measure, it seems like that investors are getting a pretty good deal and the taxpayers getting a pretty good deal mm -hmm. because we're not having to give up all that many other resources to get uh, that given federal spending. Now, I do want to introduce some caution into that. That could okay. change very quickly especially yeah. with fiscal crises it's not like you observe a very slow increase in interest rates that sort of warn people hey you know investors are now starting to wonder whether this is a good idea in most debt crises interest rates go from manageable to unmanageable like that very mm -hmm. very fast i don't think that we're on the verge of that in the united states but it is worth noting that interest rates are so low that there's really only one direction for them to go mm -hmm. which is up Right. And the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, projects that for every interest point of interest rates, uh, every point in interest rates that rise above historical norms, that's going to add about 30 trillion to the total amount of debt that we have over a generation. So if interest rates go back up to historical norms, things are going to get a little bit uncomfortable. If they go up above historical norms, we're going to be very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So just because things look really good and rosy now does not mean we should take that for granted. These things can and do historically change pretty quickly. You, you mentioned the Congressional Budget Office, and you know, the, the, the CBO does these uh, long-term, you know, both medium and longer-term, 10-year, 30-year uh, projections of, of federal debt. And uh, the, the recent ones are, are readings like like a Stephen King horror uh, uh, book because uh, the, the the picture isn't very rosy that the central uh, that the CBO is is painting. And, and you know, many people look at these projections as saying, like, "Oh, we're we're heading to this uh, debt cliff or, or some some kind of a, a necessary fiscal crisis." Now, one thing that you know, tell us a little bit about where those numbers that the CBO is as projecting and, and why they think that the, the future deficit is going to be rising so much, because I think this is important for for understanding where where we're at or where we're going uh, forward. Yeah, absolutely. Some of those projections have the debt to GDP ratio rising to close to 200% by mid-century. So it's not like that's super far in the future. I don't think that we're on the verge of an immediate fiscal crisis, but I also think it's true that the current fiscal trajectory of the federal government is unsustainable. And one of the reasons for that is we're just not doing anything about these massive entitlement programs that we don't have the money to pay for right now. Tell You've probably that. heard about this phenomenon of unfunded right. liabilities. That basically means payments that we know we're going to have to make for Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and programs like that. We just don't know how big they're going to be. Mm -hmm. And the reason we don't know how big they're going to be is because we don't know how long people are going to live. It depends on how long that they're going to live, how long they're going to spend working versus in retirement. But the one thing that we do know is that the ratio of retirees to young workers, and remember, it's the young workers who ultimately pay for these programs, that ratio is much, much higher than it's ever been. And as the population ages, it's only going to get higher, mm -hmm. which is going to make paying for these programs extremely difficult. We're going to have to borrow a lot of money just to meet these obligations. 
Some figures say the magnitude of U.S. unfunded liabilities is about $200 trillion. Right? That means that Uncle Sam right now is in the red for $200 trillion, which is roughly three years worth of world GDP. So there are fiscal problems, make no mistake. Just because we're not gonna have a fiscal crisis tomorrow doesn't mean that we're running out of time to get our fiscal house in order. The next 10 to 15 years are gonna be crucial in deciding whether we actually have the political will to honor these commitments that we made. Mm -hmm. and, and it's also important to note that the Congressional Budget Office's projections also have to include some projection about taxes. And so when they're, they're showing uh, deficits are you know, getting larger and the, the debt go, going up, that's, that's also with some projections about taxes. So another possi you know, real possibility would be that we're facing some significantly higher taxes in, in the future because of these, uh, commit these commitments that we've already made to Social Security and Medicare that uh, the, the bills are going to be coming in the future. And you know, one possibility might be that we're going to face much higher taxes. That's one possibility, yes. At the end of the day, the money can only come from three places. We tax, we borrow, or we run the printing press. And of course, running the printing presses creates pretty serious inflation, not unlike we're seeing now. And inflation is just another form of a tax. It's a, form, mm -hmm. it's a tax on people who use and hold dollars. So there's no getting around the ultimate fiscal constraints. We have to pay for all this somehow, assuming, of course, we don't write it down, which has its own political cost. So we're gonna have to figure this out. There are some uncomfortable trade-offs. Thankfully, we have some pretty good economic tools that can help us make sense of and navigate these trade-offs. So while the situation right now is dire, it's also not too late to do something about it, but we better get serious about it pretty darn quick. Now, you mentioned uh, that there's been some talk about trying to use a different way to measure uh, the, the size of the debt. We started by talking about the, the debt to GDP ratio. and. Um, Although that's by far the most common way you see the debt scaled, it's not necessarily, from an economic theory standpoint, it's not necessarily a, a very good way to, to measure that. If you could, tell us a little bit, like, what's, what's wrong with the, that, that comparison of, of debt to GDP? Sure. So when you have the debt to GDP ratio, arithmetically, that's exactly what its name suggests. In the numerator, you have government debt. In the denominator, you have the U.S. economy, how many goods and services we're producing every year. And right away, that gives you a clue that maybe that's not an apples to apples comparison, because in the numerator, you have what we call a stock variable. It's just a lump of stuff, right? At any given moment, the public debt is a certain size, and that's it. But GDP is a flow variable. It has a time dimension associated with it. GDP is not a lump of stuff. It's stuff that we produce every single year. So usually, if you want to have a good comparison, the kinds of variables, stock and flow, that you have in the numerator should match up what's in the denominator. So yes, it's true, debt to GDP is the most conventional measure, and it's not an awful comparison, right? right? Because the thing that we have in the denominator, GDP, does give you some measure of the resources that you have to service the debt, which is in the numerator. But if we wanted a really accurate comparison, we would look at something like interest expenses as a fraction of GDP, because we pay interest expenses every year and we produce GDP every year. All of a sudden we have flow variables to flow variables, apples to apples. And also it's worth noting that once we make that comparison, again, to repeat a figure that I mentioned earlier, the interest expense ratio to the GDP is only about 1.5% right now, mm. which is actually lower than it's been in decades. 
And it, but although that is, as you mentioned, due to these very extremely low, historically low interest rates, but um, you know, there were a couple of economists who, who, who were making this argument, Jason Furman and, and uh, Lawrence Summers, uh, were very highly respected uh, economists. And, and, you know, they made the point in, in the paper where they were discussing about this, you know, we don't need to know exactly why interest rates are so low. They have been for a very long, long time, and, and, and that seems to suggest there mu that must be some kind of a fundamental economic, uh, el uh, something fundamental about the economy is keeping those interest rates are so low. Because as you mentioned, it really is completely implausible to think that the Federal Reserve could be manipulating interest rates that much for that long. It's got to be all those millions and millions of investors uh, you know, the, the balance of, of what they you know what they want to make available for people to borrow and then what people want to borrow it's got to be something in that that's driving those low interest rates not some kind of measures some kind of effort that the uh, Federal Reserve's doing that's right look I'm as big a critic of the Federal Reserve as you're probably gonna find I am NOT a fan of the job that they've done over the years over the decades that being said we have to be honest about what the what is the central bank's fault and what is not like you said, if you've got a 14 plus year decline in interest rates across the board, right? Look at whatever point you wanna look at on the yield curve, short-term debt, medium-term debt, long-term debt, it's all down. If it's that low for that long, there's something structural going on. Yes, policy, including monetary policy, can affect interest rates in the short run, especially if the central bank uh, surprises people, mm -hmm. does something that investors don't expect. But when you've got a decade plus of low interest rates, especially compared to historical trends, there's something else going on. And I think the point that uh, Professors Furman and Summers made is that when you look at the interest expense to GDP, the taxpayer is actually getting a pretty good deal. So it might not be the worst idea to borrow more while that interest expense is low, while global interest rates are low, to refinance the government debt, so to speak. And there are economic arguments for that. Uh, the prudential conservative in me makes me that makes me a little bit nervous precisely because that measure is so sensitive to changes in the interest right. rate. Interest rates are low. Only one direction for them to go up. If they do go up, that interest expense figure that we talked about a minute ago that looks so rosy now is going to look like a nightmare pretty yeah. quick. So I don't think that we should gamble on that being accessible to us for the foreseeable future. And you know, and, and so if you if you could a little bit, we've mentioned you know how large the uh, you know I guess the long term effect of a one interest one percent interest rate uh, hike would be over like say a, a generation, but in the near term, if if interest rates start to rise and we the the, uh, the, the interest on the debt that the federal government has to pay goes up and it can go up the, the numbers can show it could go up dramatically in a, in a short period of time. What again? What kind of Impact. Well, how, what's the opportunity cost of, of, of this for us? What, what do we have to be fearing about? That's going to cause some pretty nasty political debates because all of a sudden federal resources have become that much more scarce because the fraction of federal revenues that we're going to have to spend just servicing the debt is going to go up. And it's not like we can just super quickly transition to other sources of revenue. Once you're that reliant on debt markets, it's very hard to change on a dime. So if servicing the debt suddenly and unexpectedly becomes more expensive, that means that there's going to be fewer resources in the federal pot, so to speak, to satisfy various political agendas, whether left or right. 
when political resources get scarce, political partisanship gets even more pronounced. And we're already living at a very partisan time. So I think that we have to worry right now that if there are going to be even harder trade-offs in our future, because servicing the debt suddenly and unexpectedly becomes more expensive, that's going to cause some real divisiveness over genuine political priorities, right? We have actual differences in what we view the proper role of the government to be. Those fights would only get nastier if servicing the debt got more expensive. And, and so we, you know, the possibility would be we'd have some very, very difficult decisions to, to have to make going forward. Uh, we just have a, a little bit of time left here. In, in one sense, the, the message from uh, Professor uh, Furman and Summers might have been like, well, maybe the federal government's got some more room to, to borrow. And, and from a political standpoint, a public choice standpoint, that doesn't sound like the there's a part of me that says like that's a, the, exactly the wrong message to tell Congress because and Congress got that message and, and lo and behold, they went out and spent a lot of money, right? They went out and spent a lot of money and after the fact, it seems like they spent a lot of money on things that really didn't do that much good or that we really didn't need. When you look at the money that was actually spent, a very small fraction of that was spent on things that could immediately stem the tide of the pandemic. You got a lot of business loans, a lot of bailouts, frankly, a lot of pork. So I don't think that we can trust politicians to massively ramp up federal borrowing in the hope that we're going to pull off some, you know, optimal first best refinancing of the federal debt. Politicians are people. They have goals just like you and me. Their goal is to get reelected. It's easier to get reelected when you sprinkle benefits on your constituents and hope someone else pays for it. Well, thanks for very much for coming on and, and enlightening us on this very important topic. And thank you for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. 